Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are at this line where my fear is, my like worst fear is, we are the ones that will preserve the system that Putin emerged from and rules currently. Not because we love Putin, just because we're so desperately afraid of destabilization in, in general and what that would mean. And okay, we hate the system, but we kind of know how to manage it or we think we do. And maybe that's better than the unknown, right? This is always the great thing that we grapple with. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. It's been almost one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the nearly constant barrage of Russian missile strikes continues. I wanted to discuss what the recent news that Western allies are sending advanced weapons and tanks to Ukraine will mean and how the war has developed this winter. Here to walk us through the recent developments is the one and only Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, and other publications. She's the lead author of a newsletter called GreatPower.us, and she's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Molly, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So last week, the United States and Germany announced that they're going to send tanks to Ukraine. Not just any tanks. These are bigger, better, badder tanks. So can you walk us through the buildup to that decision and what the change in the stance of sending these more advanced weapons could mean in the war? Sure. I mean, in in the most basic terms, you know, we're at the 11-month mark here on the full-scale invasion timeline from the Russians. And, you know, I and others and Ukrainians have been complaining for much of this time about the slow rolling of weapon systems and armaments going to Ukraine, which is not to minimize the vast quantities of things that have gone, especially the steady flow of munitions, which are absolutely critical to allowing the Ukrainians to continue to fight. Everything that has been done is crucially important, and everyone is grateful for all of these things. But there have been significant delays in providing longer-range capabilities and armored capabilities and air defense capabilities that everybody has known the Ukraine has needed since, like, 2015. And why it has been this slow is just sort of like... And the deep embedded in all of these discussions is just, like, the deep and aggressive Russian narrative that people have absorbed since 2014, which is this, oh, you can't, like, don't really arm the Ukrainians because they're going to try to invade Russia and, and like, it'll, you know, they'll go too far and it will be terrible, which is exactly the same crap they used to say about Georgia, which was nonsensical because Georgia was tiny. I mean, Georgia's 3 million people compared to Ukraine, which is 40 million people. But perception from some, myself included, has been that People who are still skeptical about 
the capabilities we're providing to Ukraine and why we're doing that have tried to slow roll the manner in which Ukraine can fight to sort of restrain the way they're fighting or have attempted to by limiting the capabilities that we're transferring to them. And there have been direct statements about this from Pentagon officials and others basically saying, you know, we assess at this phase of the war XYZ is not needed by the Ukrainians for the fighting that they're doing now, which is always funny because then in the next story they leak to the New York Times, it's, we're so frustrated the Ukrainians never tell us what their war plans are. And it's like, because you leak them immediately to the New York Times. But, you know, so there's this, but there has been this perception of, we, from our side, uh, think we're being very deliberate about how, like, no, we'll do this one step at a time. We'll see what they need. We'll get there when we get there. And from the Ukrainian side, it's like, this is always going to be where we ended up. And the part that I try to highlight as somewhere in the middle, you know, is every day that 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 gap is closed by Ukrainian lives. And their strategic objectives have been the same since the first day of the war from the Ukrainian side, which is to get Russian forces out of Ukrainian territory and regain control of their land so they can stop fighting this war that they've been fighting now for nine years and have control of the future of their country and, and protect the lives of their citizens. But I think, you know, it's just it's been frustrating because again, yes, the things that have happened have been good, and the U.S. has sort of really innovated how they've been able to more quickly disperse the funds to buy the things, to get the things to Ukraine. Like, there has been tremendous innovation in getting these things to Ukraine in a timely fashion. But every time one of these things happens, it's like, oh, new defense package, pat on back, pat on back. And there's like two weeks of all of us patting ourselves on the back for the wonderful things we're doing for Ukraine. And every day of those two weeks is like more dead Ukrainians. And they don't highlight their casualties and losses, partially for morale reasons, partially because it's just not the point right now. Like, every Ukrainian knows the cost of the war. Every Ukrainian family has KIA, MIA in their families. Everybody knows what's happening there, but they see no other choice than to continue and and win the war and any help. And they're not going to complain about it. They're not going to bitch and moan about it. And there's actually been far less bitching and moaning in the last year than you would have had the previous six. Of course, the right tone with the allies. But it's this, this thing that I think we really need to look at more is every day we're focused on restraining, quote unquote, Ukrainian capabilities, our fear that they may strike something that we don't want them to strike in Russia is more dead Ukrainians. And that cost is as much on us as it is on others. And I mean, we know that and we make that decision anyway. And so I just think for people not involved in making the decisions about which weapons go to Ukraine, we should all be aware of that cost. And from the beginning, we have made it clear, the Biden administration has made it clear, NATO allies have made it clear, this is how the war will be fought. No one will be there with Ukraine. Ukraine will fight this war on their own, but we will give them all the things that they need to do it. And the Ukrainians are fine with that equation they're not complaining. No one was expecting NATO forces to show up at their side. You know, they're willing to fight the war. But the slowness does come with a cost. And I think we need to be super aware of that. Yeah, I think it's also worth reminding people that part of the equation about 
slow rolling the equipment, being very careful about which equipment we give them so that they can't hit certain Russian targets has a lot to do with fear of provoking Putin and that fear itself. Right, right, right. That's what I mean. Yeah. A fear of provoking Putin because we're, we're sort of stuck in a, in an antiquated mentality about Russia from the cold war. And that seems to be changing now, at least the willingness to give Ukraine more serious, longer range, more offensive weapons than defensive weapons seems to now be changing. And I think the 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 sending of these tanks is is maybe an inflection point um, in that change. Can you talk about how significant these tanks themselves are, uh, the ones that the Germans are giving, the ones that we're giving? I think they're getting a couple other from the UK There's as a bunch well. of stuff going in, and it's the first serious... I mean, there's been dribs and drabs of armored vehicles and other things kind of going into Ukraine uh, throughout, um, but nothing that would have allowed them to assemble sort of a serious mechanized armor brigade, which is <laughs> what they need. Yeah, so what um, that, how does that change their capabilities vis-a-vis... The struggle with Russia. So there's been the U.S. is sending a bunch of Abrams. Uh, the Germans are finally sending some Leopard tanks, which the Ukrainians have been asking for since forever. The Germans are sending a bunch of stuff. We're sending a bunch of stuff. Um, uh, the Belgians are sending some armored vehicles. Uh, everybody's sort of, you know, shaking the trees a little and sending what more they can. I, I think it's important to mention that Sweden is also sending a lot of heavy armored vehicles, um, which is notable because they're not even in NATO yet and the Turks are being... But they want to be. Big bags of bleep about (laughs) letting uh, the Swedes into NATO along with the Finns who have both applied. Um, uh, So, I mean, there's there's these serious commitments of things coming. uh, and, And clearly in an organized fashion, I think a lot of what's been happening is this like sort of game of chicken between the Biden administration and the Germans, um, which has been happening since, you know, at least February, yeah. but uh, where we're sitting there like, come on, Europeans, cough up, like we're doing all of these things. You guys need to do some things. Germany, you've got 800 tanks in a warehouse, granted none of them work, but like maybe you can send some of those, like maybe you can put them back together and send them to Ukraine. And um, it's been this in this in the same way you, you you kind of used to hear the line from the Obama administration like Europe needs to lead on blah blah yeah. blah. This has very much been a Biden line and a Trump line, honestly, too. Like Europe needs to lead in European security. And again, I don't disagree with that sentiment. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Not maybe the best time to play the game of chicken, but um I think there has been this sort of we're not gonna do it, you need to do it. And then the Germans finally were like we're going to do it, but only if you do it. Yeah. Fine. Like, we'll all do it. Everybody do it. Woo. You know, so this, I think the dam finally broke because what we um, have seen happening in Ukraine in terms of, I don't even know what, like new offensives from the Russian side, whatever you want to call the various attempts to organize anything useful. Um, there's probably a new one coming uh, beginning soon in early February. Um, it's basically been the exact same battle plan every time it's just every time they put more stuff behind it they're like all right well x many crappy conscripts didn't do the job let's send two x many conscripts to Mm. do the job and see what happens um and that i mean the you know bodies and mass do matter and the ukrainians are aware of this so every time we sort of slightly stepped up the counter capabilities we're giving the ukrainians um and this is a significant uh sign of that but we've basically given them enough stuff for like two armored brigades which is not insignificant but it's basically think about like those will be at the area of the hottest fighting 
uh, and that's it. And in the offensives, uh, or sort of the brilliant Ukrainian counteroffensives that you saw in November, um, it would be like, you know, sort of a, a specialized unit breaking through a line, and then you needed two brigades to kind of get through that line and do things. So um, we're basically just giving them a strike capability, which okay. I think we should note. I mean, yeah. again, just keep in mind, I know yeah. we're all far away, and maybe we've looked at the map, maybe not. But Ukraine is massive. Like, the yeah. distance from the west to the east is significant, from the north to the south is significant. They have 4,000 miles of trenches that they are constantly manning in the eastern front. And that doesn't include all the additional border yeah. uh, with Russia and Belarus that they need to deal with, um, plus the coast, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> two, two armor brigades yeah. and 4,000 miles or 4,000 kilometers of trenches is like... Okay, well, thanks. And the way that one of my um, most candid and clear-eyed Ukrainians who I was talking to this week put it was, I mean, it's a very good cake. We like this cake very much. The quality of the cake is very nice. But we were okay with the bad cake as long as there's enough of it for all of us. Mm. And um, I think mm. there is this gap still of just uh, perceptions, like we're patting ourselves on the back. Because yeah. we have taken the significant sure. step now of sending more armored capabilities and sending tanks. Um, but we need to do this at, at scale. Plus, we're still not sending them yeah. long-range strike capabilities, which is what they really need. And just now, sort of buried in all the news this week, there was also the story that like, just now, 11 months into the war, we finally increased our ordering, essentially, in our defense industry of artillery, shells, capability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to like seven times what it was two years ago or whatever. But um, that should have happened last year. Yeah. And it's like, why on earth did this take, like really, like you didn't watch the first three weeks of the war when yeah. Ukraine shot more crap than happened in most World War II battles and the Russians did twice as much. Like you didn't see this and think, hmm, we should probably order some more things now. I just, so some of this frustration drives me yeah bananas and I, you know it's for a lot of different reasons and it's not worth getting into but we're what we're doing is good you're right this is sort of a critical point of we have given them a more significant offensive capability although we are sprinkling it in defensive dust because of this new offensive that's coming from the russian side um but they need planes and they need longer range attack uh, missiles the atacums from the u.s side there's a UK one they would also be quite happy with, some Storm Shadow, I think it's called. Um, but they need these longer-range stripe capabilities to um, hit Russian uh, basing in Crimea and further behind the lines, um, and also to hit Russian missile sites, the, the, Russian, the sites that are launching Russian missiles toward Ukrainian civilians um, consistently. Yeah, so both of these things are sort of like critical. I think everybody at this point for some reason the planes are a bridge too far but the missiles we need to do. Yeah. Do you see this uh, the dam breaking as you put it uh, a western reaction or a response to what we now know is Russia preparing this massive new offensive or is there was there something else going on where Everybody woke up and realized, hey, actually, we could and should beat Putin now, and he's more beat. It's important that we beat him. Now. Was was this primarily a reaction to or an awakening to some some other geopolitical reality? I think it's kind of two things. One is this whole time, sort of inside our alliance structures and coalition, 
Um, you know, the the allies closer to the line have been very quietly, very consistently, uh, I mean, quietly for us to see, but loudly within the within the room, uh, pushing about both the necessity and the moral uh, the moral necessity of helping the Ukrainians as much as we can. And then looking at, at you're never going to get a better chance to do something to change the way we're dealing with Russia. Um, and that's been from, you know, Baltz, Poles, uh, the Swedes, the Finns uh, as well, um, from some to some extent from the UK. But like the people closer to the line are kind of like the Czechs have been really strong on this, you know, have just been like, why, why would we waste this opportunity? Do this. Like, and I think the example that they have all set uh, and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast when when I've been on with you, uh, of emptying their warehouses and arsenals and sending everything to you or sending everything to Ukraine because for them they bought it knowing they would need to fight Russia and the fight with Russia is in it's, Ukraine. I, so they're sending everything. Uh, and then from the civilian side as well, just the amount of aid support, you know, war material, civilian support and humanitarian aid that has gone from these countries to uh, Ukraine is really significant. And I think that has given them this incredible moral basis to go mm. into the coalition and be like, we do this. Yeah. It hurts us. Like yeah. it's hurting our economies. Yeah. It's hurting our budgets. Our people know we're resilient to this because we've talked to them about it. It's winter. Uh, it's cold. They're we paying are not, a, you know, we're paying a, a big price for energy. For this. Yeah. Like the prices there are crazy. There's all these different dynamics that they're managing, even though it creates political inconvenience, of course, for everyone. Um, and there's some Swedish stuff happening we should talk about. It's really interesting. But uh, um, but they sort of go in with this, like, we're doing it. We're the F is everybody else. And um, that, I think, has has slowly over time in these last 10 months, you know, had an effect within the European side of the alliance, certainly. Um, and I think on the other side is this, like, you know, slowly waving away the smoke and mirrors from our eyes of any day now the real Russian army is going to show up and they're going to win and oh, whoopsie, what can we do? I, I think there has slowly, slowly been the acceptance of, at the very least, and I think really just at this line still, Russia can be defeated in Ukraine and needs to be defeated in Ukraine. And people actually kind of investing in that idea. I think the line, no one in the further west part of the alliance has been willing to cross yet is this and then there might be like we need it we need to come up with a new system for what russia looks like right like what is change in, like don't be afraid of change in russia we need to embrace that it's going to happen and figure out what that mess is going to look like and, and how we're going to clean it up and what yeah. it looks like on the other yeah. side yeah. um and they're starting to, there's you know some smart people starting to write a little bit about this i probably will at some point too but um it, it's this we are at this line where my fear is, my like worst fear is we are the ones that will preserve the system that Putin emerged from and rules currently. Not, you know, because we love Putin, just because we're so desperately afraid of destabilization in, in general and what that would mean. And, okay, we hate the system, but we kind of know how to manage it or we think we do. And maybe that's better than the unknown, right? This is always the great... Uh, thing that we grapple with but I just um so I think we are kind of at the point of there is now willingness more willingness than there was 11 months ago maybe not total willingness to pursue Russian defeat and I think part of that may come from 
a perceptional management game of like, they need to see that we're committed to this so that maybe they think we're actually committed to this so that they, you know, so like, cause they're, tr- everybody's still trying the to force games. negotiations, right. right? There's still this hope that there'll be a negotiated settlement and things will go back to the way they were and we can all go home. Um, so I, you know, some of it's real, some of it's not, yeah. <laughs> it's all these different things yeah. echoing around, but yes, I do think our mindset has advanced a bit on okay. objectives in Ukraine. Um, we are providing more capabilities for that, but it's just uh, it's just not enough. And in the meantime, we're asking impossible things with the Ukrainians, not only the sacrifice that they're making on a daily basis, but, you know, we're sending them so many things. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, cool, I'll just like look up the YouTube video yeah. about how to service the Abrams tank. No problem. <laughs> Along with the other 95 archaic yeah. European systems yeah. that we've set them, uh, right? Like Ukrainian mechanics are going to be the absolute <laughs> best in the world after this war because they have to know how to like build, work shoot, on all rebuild, kinds of repair, shit. any system. Um, uh, it's just, it is sort of remarkable. I mean, and literally a lot of the time they're like FaceTiming dudes they know from those countries and being like, yo, bro, how do we shoot this thing? Oh, and they're like, wow. okay, let me show you. Wow. <laughs> it's just Talk like, about resourceful. It is. They're amazing. But um, anyway, my point being they're doing everything they need to do and everything they can do um and what we have done is much more than what i feared a year ago um but it's just not enough and i think we never we should never let ourselves off the hook that it's enough so we've given them strike capabilities and now what they really need is long range strike capabilities and more just more of everything more more, and more more of everything um to to shorten the timeline of fighting and save Same lives. lives. Yeah. Okay, got it. Okay, so we're now heading towards spring. Russia launched their invasion at the end of last February. As you mentioned, we're about 11 months out. So we could be looking at another push from Russia coming up. That's what all this is about. Um, what are we seeing about how Russia and Ukraine are preparing um, for the next phase of the war? Um, I mean, the Ukrainians are doing what they do, which is, you know, getting stuff, putting it where it needs to go. Uh, Probably a lot of mild deception operations underway about what they're thinking about doing as well. Um, Is Russia just preparing to throw bodies at the front lines? Is that, you know, I think it's just, it's the, we'll send more stuff and we'll shoot more things and it will be here. And I don't think it's going to be a surprise where they're going to be and what they're going to fight on. But, um, It'll be a new, it's sort of the new commitment of things. Uh, And I think the draft, you know, the call up of whatever that was happening below these however many months ago, um, some of those guys have actually been trained now and they'll Mm. get sent in. Uh, The first ones were just meat and they were sent and killed or captured or locked in basements or whatever. So now there'll be some maybe slightly more trained dudes. Uh, Obviously, Wagner, the Russian mercenary contingent. Uh, is playing a bigger role in uh, what's happening. And they're really drumming up in a very ISIS-like way this, like, image that they're monstrous, terrible, brutal, violent killers. Uh, And again, this is all the perceptional, you know. Yeah. uh, We are getting guys from prison who will smash your head with Mm. with sledgehammers, you know, whatever. And... um, the. It's just, it's all sort of funny in the Ukrainian sense because, like, Ukrainians don't care. They're not buying any of this. They're just like, okay, guys, send it. But it's all aimed at us. And I think this is the part that we need to be 
uh, much more in tune to still uh, and are sometimes not like the a couple weeks ago there was this show of a reshuffle and you know Grasimov was sort of put in and it's like is what does it mean it's like what it means is they're focused on how we're thinking about this and they want to show us that they are committed air quotes to continued ongoing fighting and not tired or giving up um, because it's not working on the Ukrainians like the Ukrainians are not tired they're not wavering they're not, you know, getting ready to walk away from the front lines. Like, none of the nonsense is working in Ukraine. So they have to aim at us and hope that we constrain them or urge them to stop fighting. Um, and I think we just need to be far, far more aware of those dynamics. Because um, it's not like they're not watching the fights right. on our House floor. Right. Right. <laughs> when the crazy right. Republicans are like... Everything is Ukraine's fault. We yeah. should stop funding Ukraine. Like yeah. they see that and they see opportunities. So um yeah. we all need to be more aware of that because that times, you know, 30 is what's happening across our alliance structure right now. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about Belarus for a minute because mm-hmm. Russia and Belarus have been engaging in joint military exercises in Belarus, which is north of Ukraine. Um, there's been some speculation that uh Russia's trying to pressure. Belarus to take on a more active role in the war. Um, so I wonder how how real that is and how would that uh, move change the dynamics of the situation? Um, and I'm and I'm flashing back now to uh, when you and me and Mike Madrid were in Ukraine and you were explaining <laughs> this was this was back in May of last year and you were explaining just how Belarus is sort of a, a proxy Russia really at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, so can, can you talk a little about the relationship there and then yep. like whether this is real and how significant it would be for the war if yep. this is what happens? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question slash point, uh, especially in the perceptional awareness category. You know, Lukashenko, for all his many, many faults and sins, which are many, uh, the president of Belarus for all these many years now, um, the one thing he did successfully... Uh, that earned him a lot of credit within Belarus before this most recent round of protests. And he, I mean, he, the shark has been very, very, very jumped at this point. But the thing he did well before the shark jumping uh, was um, keeping, managing to keep Belarus independent from uh, very obvious Russian attempts to sort of absorb Belarus more overtly into a political union or a military union or what an economic union or whatever. Um, and, uh, and in, until recently that included keeping Russian forces, like no Russian forces were allowed to base in Belarus. They had to come in and out for exercises and whatever. All of this has sort of been reset. Uh, I hate that word, but nonetheless, um, Lukashenko really screwed up, uh, with the crackdown after the elections, uh, the last round of presidential elections, which resulted in most likely uh, Tikhonovskaya being elected as president, but who knows, because it was all burned and thrown out and whatever. Um, So in that phase where he was trying to regain control of the protests against him, he finally had to open the doors and let Russian security services, Russian propagandists, more guys in. uh, And since then has been hosed and is still trying to manage the dynamic of being hosed. Uh, And I think because of all the sort of, it seems pretty clear that the Belarusian military and security services 
are not in like they don't want to invade Ukraine. They're not excited about this. They've been very much pushing back against it the whole time as well. Um not out of necessarily love of Ukrainians, but more right. out of love for themselves. Right, and not, and not wanting to die. <laughs> the self-preservation. <laughs> um, but but wrapped up in that is this, because they want to still be independent, like you can love or hate all the things going on in Belarus, but, um, you know, the, the sort of long line efforts of Russia to join with Belarus into some giant, un- a, a new union, you know, that Putin might then become the head of or mm. whatever... Uh, they don't love this either. And at least most Belarusians are not in love with this idea. And so that whole dynamic has created this sort of like, everybody's been watching this very closely. Mm-hmm. Like, are Belarusian forces actually engaged in the war? Or are they just sort of like letting Russians do things out of their territory? Um, and this has been sort of an interesting line to watch. Thus far, they have not been engaged. Uh, there's been some low-level sabotage happening in Belarus yeah. at various points to... Uh, slow Russian movements. Um, So I think the question of, you know, do they engage directly? It would be like the final death of the existence of Lukashenko and his independence, right? Well, this Um, is interesting. The reason I asked the question is because I remember distinctly in that conversation, I think we were in a car driving somewhere. Probably a car or a train or something. A train. (laughs) and, And I remember you saying... At the time, and again, this was May, and it was a couple of months after the initial yep. invasion, um, that one thing to watch, one thing to fear really for Europe was if Putin pushed either past Ukraine or around Ukraine and expanded into Europe in order to surround Ukraine, yep. and that the first place he would go would be to knock over Belarus because it would be so easy. Yeah. And it it's interesting to me that we're now 11 months out, and that's the thing that we're now talking about as whoa, 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 what's actually happening? And what does that look like? What is that? And what yeah, does that look exactly. like? Yeah, exactly. And, so. Well, it's true. I mean, if you look at the map, uh, the Baltics are always sort of dangling up there yeah. in the north by themselves yeah. uh, between the Baltic Sea and, and Russia. Um, but Belarus sits between the Baltics and Ukraine for all intents and purposes with, you know, Poland to the West and the Baltics directly North and Belarus kind of in the caddy corner in between. And so there's all sorts of reasons that a greater Russian presence there or greater Russian dominance of Belarusian decision-making would be bad for, certainly for the Alliance. Um, And it's something that the Baltic states would obviously have to watch very carefully, especially Lithuania, which shares quite a long border with Belarus. Um, uh, you know, it's just it's it it would be one of these moves that Russia would try to make if they want to show renewed commitment right. to expanding the fighting, which they are doing right now in terms of the perception of this yeah. new fighting in the new quote unquote yeah. fighting in the east, but and the whole Garasimov move and everything else, where they're trying to show no no we're not giving up either like yeah. we're committing resources to the escalation of this conflict right now and certainly um, that would provoke uh, a proportional kind of response from the west and from the allies or you would well, hope well it has that, hence yeah. the tanks uh, right? right like okay. this is our small step in response to their small Got step it. and the escalation ladder continues um so you know it's signif- it would be significant if okay the Belarusians are finally forced directly into this. It's a thing to watch. And the political dynamics have changed since then, which would make it easier for Putin to do that. So I think Um, that's in the Belarusian context. Yes. It would also, I think, uh, you know, there's been a whole bunch of real interesting stuff happening and all the former 
the, yeah. for, the former Russian-dominated places. Uh, the stands look super interesting right now. Like Kazakhstan, not so big on Russia anymore. Huh. You know, the rest, everybody's sort of like, yeah, we're over here. You do your thing. Do not come back here and try to topple <laughs> our government again. Like, we're good. We're good. You just go go do with whatever you're doing. But there's been more space growing between Moscow and a lot of these uh, aligned nations since this renewed phase of the fighting has happened. Yeah, because, um, and the ones who were in the economic union and visited Moscow and did the dog and pony shows and whatever, um, there's been more distance growing because it's obviously aligned too far for most of them. Uh, And especially, I mean, everybody's kind of forgotten the weird shit that was happening in Kazakhstan last February, Mm. but where Russia deployed its special forces to Kazakhstan very briefly, and then they left and went to Ukraine. But um, everybody, no one wants to be the next one. Um, And there's sort of this awareness, you know, stuff that was happening in Armenia. There's, we don't need to go into all the details of all these things right now, but where Russia has not shown up for its nominal allies, but will show up to strong arm them when it needs needs things. Right. Right. And um, so there's so much opportunity around, (laughs) like around Russia for us to do things, for others to do things, which we are not exploiting, which there's very little attention to. And I think that, especially if there's more of a move toward Belarus, there's more of an opportunity with all these other places to create more normal relationships um, uh, and not as like allies, but more normal relationships with independent states who do not want to be absorbed by any Russian thing. Mm. Um, and I just don't think that we have a good strategy on that either. But the yeah. Ukrainians are thinking about it, which is yeah. positive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you you mentioned some stuff going on with Sweden. Do you want to? Oh yeah. So I mean, the whole Sweden, NATO, Turkey being the spoiler, yeah. you know, and they're trying—it's because it's of the Kurds, it's because of ter- whatever. Like they have so many excuses about this, but um, whatever the actual reason is, the Turks have said from the beginning, you know, we have some serious issues with how Sweden deals with its. It has a large Kurdish minority, um, people who fled uh, various Iraq wars <laughs> and, 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 and Turkish wars, and ended up in. Um, uh, and ended up in Sweden uh, over time. Um, but it's had long disagreements with Sweden about Kurdish-related issues. And it's claiming it wants some of these addressed before it allows uh, Sweden to join NATO. Of course, it has to be a unanimous decision by the current allies to let Sweden and Finland in. And Sweden and Finland so far have said that they are lockstep. They will only join together. Um, but, you know, Russia, intensely aware of this and has had super, super fun exploiting this dynamic. Russia has had long line influence operations going on in Sweden, uh, exploiting many of the same things they do in America for a long time. Um, there's been good documentation of, for example, a group of extremists who went to Russia, trained, mm. came back and bombed an immigration center in Sweden many years ago. Well, not many years ago, but like five, six years ago now. Um, there was good documentation um, going back at least four or five years of, you know, former RT employees, but Russian paid propagandists um, who set up their own sort of native extremist far righty type uh, nationalist websites in Sweden, very much pushing the same Mm. Russian crap as before, but now it's Swedish Uh Um, uh, and how they have exploited um, the political dynamics uh, in Sweden, the sort of anti-immigration dynamics, uh, all these other things. And there was a fascinating story. (laughs) There's a thing going on right now where a few days ago, some Danish politician 
burned a Quran in front of the Turkish embassy in Sweden. Ooh. Right. Ooh. And uh and the whole the back provocative. Right. And so the Turks are again like fuck you, Sweden, we're never letting you into NATO. <laughs> like, now we have proof that you are terrible and we will never let you into NATO. Uh, and it's not that hard to exploit this Turkish sentiment because they were already, like, in this in this mode. Uh, anyway, but, um, but the short version of a longer story is the former RT Russian propagandist guys who are Swedes who set up these far-right crazy websites um, are doing what the Russians do everywhere, which is it's not just that they do news, they do the theater, right? So mm. they took the money, recruited the Danish guy to come to Sweden to burn the thing because they wanted the story, the con- the line of conflict story, you know. Uh, so they, like, staged the whole thing. Wow. So that they could have this explosive. Wow. Because it pushes Turkey further from letting Sweden into NATO. Why so the Russians are like... information operation. I know, but they... they uh, I mean, the Turks are so dumb. The Turkish government is so dumb about how Russia plays them uh-huh. over and over again. Uh, though obviously the relationship between Turkey and Russia is a very strange one. And if you followed it since, you know, the last few years when Turkey shut down the Russian jet and then the other things, and it's like up and down, up and down sideways, this way, that way. Um, but when it comes to the political dynamics, Russia very savvy about exploiting this anti-Muslim sentiment places to make the Turks angry about things. And um, this particular, they just like, they were like, hmm, what would be a good event to make this worse? Yeah. Like, obviously, these things are happening already. Yeah. The Turks are pissed. Like, people are pissed at the Turks. Yeah. Like, how do we, how do we, oh, we'll just do this. Just burn the Quran. Just go burn it's, the Quran. It's a of good course. classic. That'll, that'll get everybody right. mad. It's like burning the American flag, right? Yeah, like, it's a classic. Get it out. Get, cl- let's do this. It's a classic. And so they do it, and and now Punch there's like the this new, <laughs> <laughs> And there's just like the new pretext for this. And it doesn't even matter that it's so obvious. Yeah. Um, and that one of the far right, news things is like no no the other far right news thing paid us to do this like uh, it wasn't our idea it was their idea you know like no nuance at all no <laughs> it doesn't even matter Russia doesn't really do nuance that three days later you can look at it and be like Russia paid for this whole thing it still happened and it still, it still created this diplomatic conflict and or a renewed diplomatic conflict and it adds yeah. to the perception in Turkish society of the things right. and like Ugh. and we all live inside the bubbles Russia wants us to yeah, be yeah because this will be seen in, you know, 20 second little video bites that nobody will get the full context. But and no one's going to look at the four days correct. later news, right? Correct. It's just, and so that, I think it's a good moment for all of us to look at this very concise, documentable from A to Z example of how Russia is exploiting mm. perceptions uh, for its own gain and for us to act against our own best interests. Spoiler um, alert, they do that here too. They do it here too, folks. But they do it everywhere. Yeah. And just, we all need to be a little more aware of how these dynamics are still playing out um, and look through uh, look through it, but explain it to our societies, um, take the time to talk about it. These things are uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, Sweden does, in fact, have nationalism issues. Uh, you know, one of in the last election, one of their most yeah. successful parties was yeah. not a very good one but um uh but then the inflation of those perceptions yeah. and using them to build these lines of conflict yeah. where it will matter on our security decision yeah. making is a russian specialty yeah. this was one of the main takeaways uh for me over the last over the last couple of years in doing this podcast talking to you and john cipher and other sort of information warfare experts is that it usually isn't 
the thing that gets everybody riled up usually isn't fabricated out of whole cloth. It is a it is it is a thing that exists already in our society, and it is inflamed and amplified and exploited in order to cause disproportional amounts of of strife and yeah. civil unrest and. Yeah. And it's not enough. It's not that it doesn't exist in the first place, right? (laughs) And for the governments that are aware of these things, it's not enough to just not amplify them. Uh, You have to actively speak against them and do things to counter them. Like here, for example, you know, we know Russia is following the following, inflaming, supporting, instigating, uh, pick your, pick your favorite word, the further right loony caucus anti-Ukraine sentiments Um, and the way that they were when they were the floor votes for the endless floor votes trying to elect the very mediocre Kevin McCarthy to speaker um, you know if the counter person whatever the rogue candidate for that round they would always come up and introduce him and like every single one of those speeches was like you don't have food on your table you can't put gas in your tank because Ukraine 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 like why are we paying for these things we don't care anymore um, and we know that narrative of why are we paying for quote unquote foreign wars is endemic in a much smaller percentage of the further left uh, progressive side. It's not been very loud lately and they've been on board with with the Ukraine stuff. So I'm not going to overly criticize them right now, but it exists and the Russians know that and they exploit it. And you can read the Quincy Institute if you have any questions about any of that. But, um, uh, you know, this it doesn't even matter like if where it's coming from anymore, Russia knows it's there there, and they just push on it and they know how big, even though that's a small, a very small percentage of the country, Americans still wildly supportive of what we are doing for Ukraine. Um, And I think there's good, uh, you know, in addition to polling, there's good secondary information on this. Americans are donating money. Americans are supporting Ukrainians online. Politicology listeners are donating money. And we're probably going to do another fundraiser soon. (laughs) So keep, stay tuned. But, um, you know, Americans are donating money. They're spending time online supporting Ukraine. Um, When... uh, uh, when they opened uh, last year the direct sponsorship of Ukrainian refugee families. Um, so if you were an American family, you could say, we will help a Ukrainian family come to the U.S. and settle um, to sort of help them short circuit the very slow refugee yeah. application process. Um, three times the number of American families applied to support Ukrainian families than were needed. And that's like, wow. and granted, it's far. Not all Ukrainians yeah. wanted to come this far from yeah. their families. Um uh, to be this far from Ukraine, but like, I just, it should, yeah. I mean, that's a, and that's a serious, it's not a small thing. It's like opening that's your home thing. and your lives and your time. Um, so I think there's good indications of how much Americans still support this, but that little faction that is like super anti this yeah. is exploiting all these narratives about why are we spending this money? Who like, let them fight, not our war, it's European war. It's like pre-World War II crap. Yeah, like, yeah. um, but also this, uh, I think where you're starting to see more effort is this, um, there must be corrupt. Like, why does it cost so much to get one tank, which mm. costs X amount to Ukraine? So trying to exploit this perception that there's corruption, there's corruption in, and like, and it's easy yeah. for everybody to just wave it around. It's corrupt. Like everybody's making money off the war, um, which is like an old sentiment. It's like since the Iraq war, this has been the narrative. Well, everybody's there is a, just making money off the war, right? Sure, and I think it. I think it that that sentiment dovetails with something with some fair criticism about fraud and waste in the defense department and how uh, Pentagon can't pass an audit and maybe never right? and, and like. <laughs> 
<laughs> and there's a real serious conversation to be had there. There are many serious right? but, conversations about how the United States of America <laughs> spends money on lots of different things. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, sure. But yeah. so I think, but knowing that this is then the perception, yeah. like what can yeah. our administration do right. to start countering this? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, one thing the Ukrainians will point to is, so we all sort of agreed to lend lease. You can look back to your pre-World War II stuff if you want to know what that actually is. Do you want to do like a 10-second explanation? What is lend-lease? How does that work? It basically gives the, uh, you know, we're not really giving the stuff to Ukraine. We're not really selling the stuff to Ukraine. But, like, they can come with their money and buy some of our stuff and pay for it over a longer term, basically. But, like, there's the assumption. Yeah. yeah. But it was used in the pre-World War II or beginning of World War II period when— Legally, we were not allowed to arm the UK, for example, to transfer things to them. Oh, so, <laughs> so we came up with a financial workaround <laughs> so, yeah, to make sure they got the things and we got the money, but it wasn't called a sale. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No sales were happening. But so there's this opportunity that was sort of agreed to, but zero things have been allowed. And so it's sort of like, and again, like the Ukrainians are willing to spend more of their money on the things they need to fight the war yeah. because that's how they survive. They do have some money and economy despite the disruptions of the war. Um, and so I think they're they're sort of like, help us help you on this. Like, yeah. let us show yeah. that we are doing these yeah. things and uh, yeah. we're still reluctant and nervous about all of it. And there's a lot of opportunities to show this as a more collaborative effort and not as Ukrainians with the begging bowl, which yeah. is the image the Russians have tried to yeah. push so strongly since the beginning of the war, um, which is not very much not the case. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's just, we all need to do more in the perceptional game um, to counter the extremely toxic and persistent efforts from the Russian side to literally fabricate stories yeah. in front of us that we play along with. All of us play along. So, yeah. Before we wrap, are you going to be writing about this? Or what, are you, what are you, what is your writing on focus piece, on right now? But I'm not, I'll have a piece up probably this weekend. So before this comes out, hopefully there'll be a new piece on Great Power. But um, uh, trying to decide if it will be about... Uh, the Gerasimov slash smoke and mirrors slash it's all about influencing us stuff or more about sort of where just where we are in the war and what what all the stuff means but it'll be Ukraine related for sure um there's a lot there's there's a lot to be discussed and then I need to do a piece about about Saakashvili but uh Saakashvili yeah Georgia well yeah I mean he'll he's dying in prison and nobody's doing anything about it so we need to we need to do something about that. Uh, otherwise, it's just a giant Russian victory, even if you hate Misha. So, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's okay. a lot of there's a lot of things happening. But, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, on that note, then everybody should go subscribe to greatpower.us, and uh, you can get on the list so that you are uh, first in line. Absolutely. When, when this is all out, Molly. Um, anything else before I let you go? Uh, where can people find you? Greatpower.us. And uh, still on Twitter at Molly McHugh. Oh, you are. I am, oh, although you. you know, you. every day it's toughing like, it out. It's like watching <laughs> watching the weirder and weirder data shit happening, and you're just like, okay. Uh, and I'm also on uh, Post News. Oh, okay. Um, same at, cool. same handle, uh, yeah. Molly McHugh. Um, I have an account there. I just haven't really. Yeah, it's one of the. It's like it starting like building a new social media thing yeah. from scratch is like you want to shoot your eyeballs out if you if you've ever done it uh, from scratch before. Like yeah. getting from zero to followers to yeah. it's like, ooh. and uh, and it's new and 
it's still it's still newifying itself. Still so figuring um, itself out. Yeah. It's good. I think it has a lot of potential. But um what Kara uh, Swisher says. Yeah, it's a, but it's like with everything, it's like yeah. It's all it's all just people, it's all people just getting people your data trying to figure you know? out or where they want to get their yeah. And so who do you want to have your data you is data. really the thing. That's but it. the Elon Musk stuff is so creepy. Story Twitter. for another time. There's all the creepy things happening on Twitter, <laughs> which are just amazing. Uh but nobody wants to talk about any of that. Um but yeah, so on post, still on Twitter, uh greatpower.us. Okay. Ranting in my backyard <laughs> quite frequently if you want to come by, but you know. Thus, thus it is. Excellent. Okay. Thanks for being here, Molly. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.